is uh, getting situated. Remind you about the uh, announcements. Change of schedule on communion in May will be on the third Sunday. Also, the next deacons meeting and men's prayer breakfast will be on Saturday the 21st of May. And then uh, Vacation Bible School, this is probably the most important one right now, is to plan for and uh, volunteer for Vacation Bible School. And the dates for that are June 13th through 15th. Then uh, also be in prayer, continue to be in prayer for uh, for Camp Arete. So those are the main uh, main announcements. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 15 this evening. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are uh, prepared spiritually, uh, recover if necessary uh, for our time in the word this evening. And that means uh, confession of sin, First John 1, 9, uh, in silent prayer, and then we will be ready to, uh, to begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this time that we can come together this evening to focus upon you and your word, to learn from that which you have revealed to us and preserved down through the centuries, that we may come to understand how life really works, that we may come to understand truth about you, truth about us as human beings, fallen, corrupt, under control of our sin nature, and learn the truth about your grace and your goodness and that you have provided everything for us and that even though things may look very dark at times, nevertheless, you still remain in control. You provide for us. You sustain us. You strengthen us. And that as we learn to walk with you, we come to understand how how great and magnificent your grace really is. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we're studying tonight and that God the Holy Spirit can use these things that we study to strengthen our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 14 at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 14, and actually we're in a transition section. We are hopefully going to finish up with 1 Samuel 14. This section began in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the desire of Israel for a king. We see God uh, revealing to Samuel in chapter 9 that this king is going to be Saul, and then we are first introduced to Saul. We come to understand that Saul has certain character flaws, not unlike everybody else. It's always sad when people jump to the conclusion that Saul must not have been a believer because he had character flaws. And if that were true, then we would all be in trouble. Uh, Saul is a perfect picture, though, of the uh, believer who is in disobedience to him that he is a believer and he will spend eternity in heaven, I think is is clear from the fact that at the end of 1 Samuel, when he goes to the witch of Endor, the witch of Endor goes through her usual uh, charlatan tricks, uh, her fraud to bring up the dead and talk to the dead, is totally surprised by the fact that this time God uh, allowed Samuel to return from the grave, which really irritated Samuel. He's not happy about that. But Samuel told Saul, Today you and your sons will be with me. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be dead like I'm dead. With me has a much tighter connotation. And so where Samuel was, that is where Saul would be, which can only be uh, in paradise, where Old Testament saints went when they died prior to the coming of Christ and the cross. And so Saul is a great picture for us, an object lesson in arrogance and in self-absorption and where that where that leads. So we'll see some things there as we uh, wrap up chapter 14. Chapter 15 begins the last section of 1 Samuel because in, um, in chapter 15 we see the big transition as we go into the the end of Saul's dynasty and the lead-up into the selection of David, a man after God's own heart. So 15 to the end of the book represents the last section where the focus shifts to uh, to David. So this is that transition, that transition, transition section. Now, we got down to about verse uh, 47 last time. Excuse me. We got down to about verse <clears throat> verse 46, 47. Uh, before we stopped, and now we're going to see the last part of chapter 14 uh, is a summary. It wraps up what is going on, gives us a progress report on Saul. That bring that is why I think that that the break doesn't come between 15 and 16. 16 is where David uh, David becomes a king. It's because what you get at the end of 14 is this summary uh, uh, statement about Saul. It's a, basically a progress report. Normally, these are given at the at the conclusion of a person's life, but what we see here is this is at the conclusion of the period where Saul has a measure of God's blessing. From this point on, uh, he doesn't. So that's where, where the in the author's mind, that's where the shift occurs. Now, just a reminder of some of the geography here. This is important. Uh, the more I travel in Israel. The more I'm on the ground and the more I look at things, the more I realize, especially these last couple of chapters when we went through the things on the Battle of Michmash and looked at the pictures and seeing the ground, it just gives us a further dimension to understand what's going on. So what we have here is basic map. You can always remember this. If you think that you're looking straight ahead, you're looking north, you can always think that on your left hand you have the Mediterranean, and on your right hand, you have the Jordan Valley and the uh, the River Jordan. Uh, to the north, you're going to have Galilee, and to the south, you're going to have Judah. So, so your your picture standing standing in Jerusalem, looking looking north, and that's what we see here, just north of Jerusalem, which is not on this. Um, wait a minute, it is on this map. It's Jebus, not as as the old Canaanite's name, not um, as the city of the Jebus, Jebusites, not the, not Jerusalem. Just north, five miles or so, is Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Just a couple of miles further on, you have Ramah, which is Samuel's hometown. And then it is in that area between Ramah and Bethel, just north of Ramah, that you have uh, the location for the Battle of of, uh, of of Michmash. Just to the north northeast of Gibeah is where you have the location of Geba and Michmash. So we'll switch over to this map. And in this map, uh, you see through the lines, you see some of the various troop movements that are taking place uh, in the book of Samuel. So we'll just concentrate on this center section here right now. And what you have is here's Ramah right by this letter 1. Uh, Geba is just a little bit north of due east. And just north of that, you have Michmash. This is the uh, area, and the ravine in between is the area where Jonathan ascended the, and, and scaled the cliffs. And you see the movement of the troops. The black arrows represents the Philistine troops. It's they sent uh, one battalion north, one battalion east, and another battalion west to secure the pass at Michmash. And the blue arrows represent how the is- Israelites pursued them. And this is where we get at the end of... Um, uh, the previous section, verse 40, uh, 45, 46, we see that the Israelites pursued 
the Philistines, and they pursued them as far as um, Ajalon, which is over here to the to the uh, west. So that summarizes this area. Then if you look down here, uh, this one uh, blue arrow pointing to the south, that depicts Saul's movements sometime later. We don't know how much time goes by between uh, chapter 14 and chapter 15. It could be a couple of years. It could be a longer period of time. But it's at that time that Saul moves south against the Amalekites. But he also, as we see in the summary verse, and, and verse 47, he moves against the Moabites, he moves against the Edomites, he's going to move this blue arrow up here going north, uh, would t- take him up against the Arameans in the north. So he is, he excels as a military commander securing the borders and the security of Israel. He understands that. So he's very capable in some areas of his life. We're told in 1 Samuel 14, uh, verse 31, that they drove the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Ajalon, and uh, that's when the people were very faint. That's when we had that whole incident with with Jonathan in the forest and people eating honey in the forest, and then, then they were so faint at the end of the day, they, they were killing animals and eating the blood, all of that episode there in their disobedience. And verse 46, there's a summary that after they had accomplished this, Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now, where's their own place? They go down along the coast. That's where the Philistine cities cities were located. So here's kind of a blow-up of that one map I was just showing you, showing these movements uh, after the Battle of Michmash where they pursued them to Ajalon, which is getting down into the area... Uh, at the edge of the of the hill country. If you've been to Israel, for those of you who've been there, if you're coming on that highway to Tel Aviv, it reaches a point where you start coming out of the hills and you start heading down into the low country. And the technical term for that area, all the low country along the, the west coast of Israel is the Shephelah. And so as you're coming down into the Shephela, that's the area where Ajalon was located. This was the same place where where God... Uh, stilled the sun so that uh, uh, Joshua could continue to fight all day. So it was located in that in that area. We're told in verse 47, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. So we need to look at this verse just a little bit to get the idea of what is going on here. Uh, we don't know a whole lot, as I said earlier, in the time lapse between chapter, uh, between verse 46 and chapter 15, but this is a summary that will cover the rest of Saul's reign as he brings security to the borders of, of, uh, of the nation. And here's a principle. For a nation to exist, it has to have secure borders. For a nation to exist, it has to have secure borders because if your borders aren't, aren't defensible and defended and secure, then you will be overrun by other peoples and other cultures and you will no longer exist as a distinct culture and as a distinct nation. And this is something that is not obvious to liberals in this country. Liberals think you can have open borders, and in fact, you're seeing the influence of extreme liberalism in Europe right now, because as our president has just been over in uh, in Europe, uh, he's been telling the British that they can't leave the uh, EU, and he's been praising uh, the Prime Minister of Germany, Germany, Angela Merkel, and telling her how wonderful it is that she's letting all of these uh, Syrians and all of these Middle Eastern and North African refugees into Europe. And this is this is liberalism run amok because what happens when this takes place is you, you are overrun as a culture and it destroys your distinctiveness and you basically let an, an alien culture come in. This has happened uh, usually through military force, but it's happened either uh, with, with or without military force down through the centuries and how one nation is transplanted, one culture is destroyed by another. 
Now, when we look at the Bible, we know that the Bible teaches that God established in Genesis five different divine institutions. And these institutions are for believer and unbeliever alike. They are not just for Christians. The first three divine institutions were established before the fall. The first divine institution was human responsibility. God gave every human being personal responsibility and made them accountable for their decisions and for their actions. And every human being is accountable to God for their decisions. In the Garden of Eden, the test was the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve were told not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because there would be a, a tremendous, drastic, severe penalty. In the day that they ate of it, they would die. Now, they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They were separated from God. That's exhibited by the fact that when God came, uh, a little later on around verse 6 or 7 of Genesis 3, when God came to walk in the garden, uh, they expected it. The idea is that God normally came and spent time uh, with them, teaching them, talking to them, enlightening them uh, as to the nature of his creation, giving him the the information needed by which they could organize all of the empirical data that they were uh, collecting on it on a day-to-day day basis. So they ran and hid. That was their response because they were afraid. Up to that time, there was a harmonious relationship with God that broke that relationship, and now they were had become accountable uh, for their decision, and they suffered a penalty. And so when God rules his creation, there's penalty for disobedience. When man rules under the principles of liberalism, they try to ameliorate the, 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 the consequences. The only ones that get consequences and reap the ire of the culture are those who are holding to God's standards. That is a corollary to the principle of suppressing the truth in righteousness according to Romans chapter 1, 18 and following. When people are suppressing the truth, they're angry. They become more and more angry when anybody reminds them that what they are doing is wrong. They can't do it. Just think about a little kid. You, everybody here, I think, has had experience with little kids. And you tell that little kid that he can't do what he really wants to do. What's his response? He gets angry because you're trying to control him. You're trying to tell him he can't do what he wants to do. He can't feed the lust of his sin nature. He wants to be able to do anything and everything he wants to do whenever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it. And that's what happens under liberalism and in postmodernism as you throw off those guards for the arrogant, the arrogant uh, orientation of our sin nature. Then what happens is that, that, that we throw little temper tantrums and we'll throw them against God and we'll throw them against anybody else that represents God and his standards because we don't like that. And so to understand the culture is to understand that that the more gets away from God, the more those who represent God and represent truth and represent um, the absolutes of Scripture are going to become the objects of their scorn, of their hatred, and of their anger. Now, our response is not to be a response of bitterness, a response of vindictiveness, a response of of vengeance, but it's to be a response of grace, uh, a response of kindness, a response that is firm in standing for the truth, doesn't compromise, but we are to have that, that level of genuine compassion that we we get from scripture that's the first divine institution second divine institution is marriage and marriage was designed by god to be between one man and one woman anything less than that is all or other than that is always depicted in scripture as so personally spiritually and socially destructive wherever it goes now the bible doesn't come out and say that polygamy is immoral or that having a concubine is immoral and a sin. But what it shows is that when these things were practiced, it was destructive to the family. And the family is the third divine institution. The family is the incubation uh, 
of the next generation. It's where they're taught. It's where they're trained. It's where they're to learn discipline. It's where they're to learn about God. It's where they're to learn absolutes. It's where they're to learn how to think, how to reason. It is where they are to learn how to problem solve and how to, and especially to learn how to submit to authority in a biblical way, not in a uh, Marine Corps boot camp way necessarily. But in a biblical way, they have to understand authority. If a child doesn't get authority orientation by the time they're four, you're going to have problems as a parent. And sometimes you'll find parents who just want to spoil their young children. Some cultures are that way. But either you weep when they're one to four because you're having to punish them, or you're going to weep after they're 14, and it'll last a lot longer. But that's where ch- not every child is going to necessarily respond well. Some are just strong-willed. But it's the role of the parents to teach them discipline because that is what will get them through the rest, rest of life. So those divine institutions, individual responsibility, marriage, and family, were all designed before there was sin, even in the garden. So that tells us that it's nece- even in a perfect society, in an environment of absolute sinless perfection, those three divine institutions were necessary for there to be stability in the human race. Then after the fall and after all the horrors of the, of the uh, excessive freedom and autonomy and rebellion that occurred uh, prior to the Noahic flood, then um, after the flood then what you have is God establishing a new divine institution, and that was government, that he delegates government to man, responsibility to govern themselves and to have judicial penalties and to execute those uh, within society, whether it's something that involves a, a, from anything from a misdemeanor, municipal problem, or to... Um, some sort of felonious activity. And then after that, some 200 to 300 years later at the Tower of Babel, when the human race disobeyed God again, God then uh, divided them by giving them languages. And that is a totally separate divine institution, and it's the foundation for nations. And so when any of those divine institutions are being violated, a nation and a culture will collapse. And so if you go back and listen to the series I taught in 2008 on decision-making in the voting booth, that's the framework for understanding how to make decisions when we vote for candidates. It's not how they look. It's not the political party they're part of. It has nothing to do with their ethnicity, their skin color, their background, what college or university they went to. None of those factors. It has to do with their belief system and what they believe about those five divine institutions plus Israel. And what we've seen in our nation in the last uh, in the last eight years is a tremendous collapse because w- the erosion of those divine institutions went into warp drive about seven years ago. And we're now seeing the consequences of that, and it's going to really hurt individual Christians in the church in, in, in coming years. But the root of all that is arrogance. Man wants to define his own reality, and that's, that's Saul's problem. Saul is good in some areas, and he's bad in in other areas. And we see this picture of how he is good and how he is strong. He understands, he understood the fifth divine institution. Now today, in Western civilization, this influence of liberalism does not understand the importance of the fifth fifth divine institution. Excuse me, the fourth divine institution of nations. Excuse me, fifth divine institution uh, of, of nations. They don't understand that. And so they they want to have open borders, and they want to take down all these barriers of cult, culture. And it's not that necessarily that in arrogance, uh, it's not that there's prejudice and bigotry, although that certainly exists in some quarters. It is a recognition that for there to be order, for there to be uh, prosperity, for there to be protection, there has to be consistency within a certain area, just as when you leave your house, you don't leave the door open for anybody who can to come walk in and 
take up their residence. Pretty soon you wouldn't have anything, neither would anybody else. So this is what Saul recognizes. And we have the Philistines on the east. Actually, the description sort of goes uh, counterclockwise. Uh, he protects against Ammonites, Moabites, Edomites, the, then over to the Philistia, then up to the uh, kings of Zobah. Zobah is an area in Syria, which is the area of Aram. And then lastly, he's going to talk about the uh, about the Amalekites. He takes care of all the enemies on every side and defeats them. And then we're told that wherever he uh, turned, he harassed them. And the word for harassed is kind of an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word, rasha, which literally means, has something to do with being wicked or condemning. But it's an idiomatic use where it means he deals harshly with them. He, he Either it means he defeated them, he destroyed them, he plundered them, something along those lines. He caused them to be uh, to be destroyed. So he establishes so- sovereignty there. A couple of points, about six little points I want to uh, summarize Saul and make some application to the Christian life. Saul, like many believers, has compromised with his sin nature. He's compromised with his sin nature, and he's let his own self-absorption run away with him. He's arrogant. He demonstrates uh, complete mastery of the arrogant skills. He's self-absorbed. We've seen that he's very concerned about himself, and he's not very interested in others. He shows a remarkable ignorance of priestly things and of the religion of Israel. And and remember when he is first uh, looking for his uh, lost donkeys, uh, it's his servant who tells him as they approach Ramah that this is the city of the prophet. He has no idea who the prophet is. And Samuel's been the prophet uh, uh, judging Israel for probably 20 years at that point. That would be comparable to somebody in this country not knowing that the president lives in Washington, D.C. It's it's just beyond our comprehension. So he's he's so self-absorbed, and when you're self-absorbed, as you ratchet that up, you become self-indulgent. You give in to yourself. And then as you go through self-indulgence and you commit more and more uh, ethically questionable decisions to wrong decisions, you justify yourself. You justify all your actions. And in this next chapter, in chapter 15, we're going to see once again that Saul manifests self-justification. It does two things. First of all, you come up with a reason why you can't be held accountable, divine institution number one, for the decisions you make. And number two, you blame somebody else for the decisions that you make. That was first manifested by both uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, they were blaming each other. Adam's in a masterful, masterful sentence, says, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. He blamed the woman and God in one one shot. And that's that's how Saul is. He's He's in self-justification, self-deception, because when you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, you can't see uh, what's going on. There's no objectivity in your own life. You've slipped into irrationality because you're divorced from reality. And that leads to self-deification. You're basically worshiping yourself in the place of God. So Saul has compromised his sin nature and let his arrogance run free, and, and Christians can do that day in and day out. Second point is even though we see um, all of these arrogant skills functioning in Saul, he still shows that in his business or professional life as king that he is exceptionally competent. He's able to fulfill his mission to protect the people, even though he is filled with arrogance. However, that's not going to last very long. Under point number three, Saul's spiritual life doesn't seem to impact his professional life for some time, but eventually it does. His his arrogance in spirituality begins to cloud his judgment, shape his judgment. He is told by Samuel at the beginning of chapter 15 to, that they are to slaughter, annihilate, all of the Amalekites. So that seems pretty harsh to us, and we'll deal with the issues behind that when we get there. 
but he's told to slaughter all of them, man, woman, child, infant, nursing child, and all their animals. Everybody dies. And when he gets done and Samuel confronts him, what is Saul's response? Well, I did. I did. Now, I don't think he's, I don't think he's lying. I think in self-deception, he thinks he, he did what he was supposed to do. He has justified it so much in his own thinking that, that he's going to use these animals to, to worship God and to do it his way that he, he's blind to the fact that he has not been obedient. He, he can't see the truth for what it is anymore. And that's what happens. And we see this a lot of times in people's lives. I don't know how many times I'm asked a question by somebody. Well, how in the world can that happen? Or can those people do what they're doing? It's not logical. Well, logic isn't the issue. They are in spiritual rebellion, and that means they're in irrationality. There, and, and as a result of that, you can't logically explain why they're saying and doing the things they're doing because it's irrational. And by definition, ra- rationality cannot explain irrationality. And it just, it's just a spiritual rebellion of, of a dark soul. So what we see is that Saul's spiritual life doesn't impact his professional life for a very, very long time under point number three, but eventually it does, and there are disastrous consequences not only for himself but for his family and for the entire nation. Under the fourth, uh, what, under the fourth observation here is that what is not said is what casts the shadow on this whole evaluation. He's evaluated well in light of what he has accomplished militarily. What's missing? There's no mention of God. There's no mention of God's blessing on on Samuel. There's no mention on the fact that God is the one who provided this deliverance. God is missing from this uh, evaluation because God is missing from Saul's life. And so the absence of God in this uh, summary statement uh, speaks volumes. And that leads to the fifth point, the conclusion, that in this section through from 1 Samuel 14, 47 through chapter 15, we're going to see the outworking of Saul's arrogance, and it destroys him. It destroys all of his hopes, all of his dreams, and it will destroy his family and it will destroy, uh, almost destroy the southern kingdom, almost. If it weren't for God's grace in providing David, it would destroy. Now, one side note that I want to make you aware of as we go through this ongoing, never-ending, horrible election season, this spring of 2016, you've often heard me say that that. A nation often gets the leader they deserve. A culture, a democratic culture is going to vote for somebody who goes along with their values. And that, that the leaders that we get are often the leaders that we deserve. And that is in God's permissive will. He lets that happen so that we can experience judgment. But every now and then, God gives us leaders we don't deserve. That's what happens with Israel. They're going to get David, whom they do not deserve. They wanted a, a man like all the other na- a king like all the other nations, and they got one. They're, they they and and they don't see the problem spiritually. They haven't improved. We haven't seen anything yet to talk about the people having um, refocused their thinking upon God and turning back to God uh, at all. But what we do see is Saul representing the self-destructive orientation and arrogance of the nation. So. Uh, Saul is harassing these people, which means he's, he's defeating them and he's bringing them down. And then uh, the next verse, verse 48, says, He gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about the Amalekites when we get into the beginning of chapter 15. But the Amalekites are arguably... Israel's worst enemy and their longest sustained enemy in the Old Testament. In fact, when you talk 
in the Jewish community, when they identify an enemy, whether it is the modern-day Iranians or whether it is the Nazis under Hitler, what do they ref- what term do they use to refer to their enemy? They're Amalek. They're all Amalek. That is the term that they use to define the ongoing enemy in the world that is the present manifestation of anti-Semitism. And remember that that uh, uh, in Esther, uh, that that uh, at Esther we see the opposition there against the Israelites. And uh, I'm trying to think of his name. Uh, starts what? What did you say, Gene? No, he's a descendant of Agag. Agag is the Amalekite in this chapter. Haman. I should have thought of that because of the little hamantashen that are the little cookies they serve at uh, Purim. But uh, he is, uh, Haman is a descendant of Agag, who's the king of the Amalekites. So Amalek becomes the definitive term that Jews use to describe their uh, their their enemy. And so the last one listed is the one that I put it on the map here. The territory of Amalek is not defined in Scripture. The Amalekites are first encountered, we'll get there and we'll look at Exodus chapter 17, were first encountered as Israel came out of Egypt on their way to Mount Sinai. And they are, seem to be a roving band of terrorists not unlike ISIS today. They're a roving band. They are quite popula- uh, populous, uh, populated. They're a large group. And they l- basically settled down after the exodus somewhere in the area of the, of, um, of the Sinai Peninsula, south, south of Israel. So I've just placed them generally here in the southern part of Israel in the, in the area uh, of the Negev. Remember, all this area here is the area of the desert. Over here is a Kadesh Barnea. This whole area here is the area where the Israelites were for 40 years before God allowed them eventually to cross over, go around Edom and Moab, and then come to uh, Mount uh, uh, Mount Nebo and to enter into enter into Israel. We see this in another map showing the movements of Saul after the battle of the uh, Amalekites, which is down here in the south. He will take off and go to Carmel. This is not the Mount Carmel of Elijah. That's up in the north near Haifa. But this is another Carmel down in the uh, down in the south. So what we see is that, that uh, he is going to be chosen by God to be given the privilege of fulfilling Old Testament prophecy to destroy the Amalekites. God had promised this to Israel, to Moses, back in Exodus. It had been restated in Deuteronomy, and yet throughout all this time period, uh, the Amalekites were a problem. And he is going to uh, deliver them. There's two key words in verse 48. He's going to deliver Israel from the hands of those who plundered them, that's the Hebrew word natsal, which means to take something away or to deliver, and it's used many times as a synonym for yasha, the word for saved. Yasha becomes the, the name Yeshua, and that's the name for Jesus. It's the name for Joshua, and that is a, 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 from the noun meaning to save or to deliver. It's used in parallelism with uh, Yasha in Psalm 7, verse 1. But in that context, it's talking about physical deliverance, as Yasha does in many passages, just like Sozo does in the New Testament. In Psalm 39, 8, it clearly has spiritual overtones, as it does in Psalm 51, 14, and also Psalm 79, 9. So this is a word that that is can picture spiritual salvation, but here it is uh, picturing a physical deliverance from this this enemy. And then he's going to plunder them. Um, This is a word, uh, shamah, which also means to to plunder and just completely 
despoil these these uh, Amalekites, and that's what he was supposed to do. He, but he took it for himself, which was in violation of um, of God's mandate. Now let's look at verse forty nine. We look at verse verses uh, forty nine to fifty, and there's a or actually down to fifty one, and it's a summary of Saul's family. So we have a little genealogical reference here. And I am not going to deal with all of the issues related to this. It's a little little confusing, but the first problem has to do with Saul's sons. And the first three verses I have listed up on the screen, 1 Samuel 14, 49, this passage, 1 Samuel uh, 31, 2, First uh, Chronicles 10, 2, and for, then First Chronicles 8.33 and First Chronicles 9.39. Those are the passages. And those five passages list Saul's sons. Okay, I'll give, give them to you again. First Samuel 14.49, First Samuel 31.2, First Chronicles 10.2, First Chronicles 8.33, and First Chronicles 9.39. Now the first three are, are, are grouped together. Coming out of First Samuel and then First Chronicles is the parallel. We're told in this verse, in verse 49, the sons of Saul were Jonathan, uh, Jeshui or Ishvi, and Malkishua. Now there's one that's not listed, and that's uh, Ishbosheth. He's not listed. So we're going to see this list of three sons. The sons of Saul are Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. Now, 1 Samuel 31.2 is the battle of Mount Gilboa when Saul uh, kills himself, Jonathan is killed, and the other sons are killed. And we read that listed. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Wait a minute. Abinadab isn't mentioned in that previous list. So how do we do that? How do we pull those together? 1 Chronicles 10.2 lists three sons as Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. Now, people had, as they do today, two or three names sometimes. And so it is believed by most scholars that Ishvi, mentioned in verse 49, is the same person as Abinadab. Now, uh, here are the options. Uh, You could also say that, well, Ishvi is a variant of Eshbaal, that's in First Chronicles 8.33 and 9.39. But to do that, as some scholars do, they have to change the reading of the Hebrew text from the name Ishvi to Ishyo. But there's no, no textual support for that anywhere. There's no variant listed in any manuscript that could possibly do that. That just that's just a pure conjecture and just making it up as you go along. Uh, in their view, Ishvi should be read as a man of Yahweh, Ish being the Hebrew word for man, and Vet there would be the second syllable in Yahweh. And uh, Ish man of Yahweh would be parallel to man of Baal. Now we normally think of Baal as the god in the Canaanite pantheon who's the son of El. But Baal was also a just a Canaanite or Hebrew word for Lord. And so uh, Ish-V would be man of Yahweh, and they would translate that to man of Baal. And the name Ishbosheth means man of shame in Second Samuel 2.8, but it's parallel to Esh-Baal. See, Esh is man, Baal is is uh, God, Lord, so they try to make this connection, but there's no text. There's there's no textual support for that at all. If Ishvi is not Ishbaal or Abinadab, then there are two sons who are left out of the listings, and then there's an unknown one, Ishvi, added in, which is just you know I know this is confusing you, but but that doesn't make sense either. What this boils down to is these are the kinds of things liberals attack conservatives on and say, see, there are contradictions in the Bible. So sometimes we have to take a little time and say, look, there are other explanations. And the best solution for this is that these three sons, Ishbosheth, I mean, excuse me, these three sons, Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishur, 
are all adults in this second part of Samuel. But what happens is we come to 2 Samuel 2.10, and we're told that Ishbosheth, he's the one that survives, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. Now, if Saul reigned 40 years, when is Ishbosheth born? When Saul begins to reign. So at this point that you have these genealogical listings in verse uh, chapter fourteen, uh, chapter fourteen, verse forty-nine, Ishbosheth is just a baby. He's just maybe, maybe one years old. He doesn't count yet because you don't even know in that time whether he's going to live to and, and survive. So. Uh, he would have been just an infant at that time. So what's being listed here are the adult sons, and those are the adult sons that are fighting in the army, and they're the ones who are killed. So this resolves the problem. And then Ishbosheth is a fourth that come, came along uh, later in life for Saul, and he is um, he's just an infant er, early on in Samuel. So that makes sense. Uh, that's an easy resolution. Now, there's some other problems. I'm not going to get down and drill down into it and bore you with it, but that has to do with some of the relationships between um, in Saul's family, uh, whether Ner is his uncle or his cousin. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. This is in verse 50. The daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's, Saul's uncle. So, but the question here is, is Abner Saul's uncle or is Ner Saul's uncle? You can go home and think about that for a while and do some work on this one. Um, Kish was the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. So here's the most common genealogy. There's a couple of others uh, as they try to work this out. But you have Abiel, who is Saul's grandfather, and he's got two sons, Ner and Kish. Now, Av is the Hebrew word for father. Remember, in uh, the New Testament tells us that, that the Holy Spirit is in us crying out, Abba, Father. So in, in Hebrew, if you go to Israel, daddy is Abba. So Av is the word for father. The, my father is Nur would be Avinur or shortened to Abner. So Abner is the son of Nur and is Saul's cousin. He's uh, Saul's general. So when Saul is uh, dies on Mount Gilboa, then Abner is going to take over and he's going to go to the uh, fourth son, Ishbosheth, who's not listed here, Ishbosheth, and he's going to make him king. And so uh, Abner uh, is going to be his uh, basic strength. So you have the three sons, adult sons at this time, Jonathan, Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua, and then two daughters, Mirab and uh, Michal. Michal. And so that's a funny word. Everybody has trouble pronouncing it because we look at it and we think it's Michael, but Michael is a different term. It's M-I-C-H-A-E-L. This is just, it's spelled almost the same, except it's, it's a little different. So it just, it, it's, the I is pronounced like an E. So what we read then is just this closing out and then a final comment. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. In fact, the Philistines are responsible for his death at Mount Gilboa. The fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. What's happening here? It's a little foreshadowing. Who's going to be the strong man to come along in chapter 16? Chapter 17, we're going to see Goliath and David. What's going to happen with David? David's going to be brought into his family. So what we're seeing is foreshadowing what's coming up, but apparently what, what Saul's good at is identifying the good warriors, uh, the good fighters, and he is strengthening his, his, uh, his military. And so he understands that much, and that made him a good leader as far as protecting the uh, security of Israel was concerned. That ends the first part, this, this second section of the book from 8 through 14. Then the next section begins 
with 15. And in chapter 15, the focus is on arrogance. The focus is on human beings who are in rebellion against God and human beings who want to write their own rules. And this is always a problem in the human race. We always have these leaders and people who just want to do it their way, and uh, they have two, you have two different problems. One is legalism. And in legalism, we just want to go through the external formalities and think that that's as long as we cross our T's and dot our I's, and as long as we follow our little set of rules, whether it's the terrible two or the nasty nine or whatever it is, as long as we do that, we're okay in God's eyes because we're okay in our eyes. And that's just formalism. And everybody has either a trend towards that or they have a trend towards out-and-out lasciviousness and licentiousness in the other direction. But the problem we're dealing with here with Saul is a problem of religious formalism. He wants to do everything right externally, but his heart isn't toward God. He's not a man after God's heart. He's just following the external codes. And so he's going to face a condemnation from Samuel in this chapter. In 1 Samuel 15:22, Samuel says, "Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What's better to go through the the external rituals like you're supposed to are to uh, obey the Lord?" Uh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The sacrifices in the, in the sacrificial law of, of the Torah was designed to teach spiritual principles about a person's real relationship with God, understanding that sin makes us uh, unclean before God. We are separated from God uh, because of any kind of sin or uncleanness that uh, makes us distinct from God, and so we have to recover, and there has to be a, a cleansing. And we find this principle all the way through Scripture. Uh, the, the, the formalism of the, of the sacrificial code is designed to not, not to be an end in itself, but to be teaching principles of ongoing relationship. We have passages like this. Hosea condemns Judah and his generation. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. See, God wants a person who has a personal relationship with him, even in the Old Testament, who is concerned about their relationship with God, walking with the Lord and walking in obedience, more so than the formal uh, structures of the Mosaic law. Uh, David recognized this in Psalm 51, his great confession for his sin with Bathsheba and conspiring to kill Uriah the Hittite. He says to God, for you do not desire sacrifice or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God ultimately are a broken spirit. What he means by that is submission to God's authority. A broken and a contrite heart. Another way of just talking about submission to God's authority, obeying him. Saul, on the other hand, is not submissive and obedient. He's going to be rebellious. And so he's going to be condemned for his rebelliousness because that is like the sin of, of witchcraft. It's, it's Satan's sin. Uh, so... David says in verse 17, The sacrifice of God or a broken heart or broken and contrite spirit. These, O God, you will not despise. Proverbs 21.3, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to, God, to the Lord than sacrifice. Well, wait a minute. You have all these commands in Torah to sacrifice. Yes, but that is simply an, to be an external reflection of an internal reality. This was the basis for... Uh, Isaiah's condemnation of Israel. Hold your place, and let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at, start, let's start at verse 11. Isaiah is indicting Israel because they're going through all the external ritual, all the formality, but there is no internal desire to obey God or to come to know God. He says in verse uh, 11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? 
to me, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. I'm sick of it. You're doing everything right for all the wrong reasons. You're going through the step-by-step procedures, but there's no personal relationship with me. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? You know, you've added other things as well. He says, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meaning. Verse 14, he goes on. Your new, new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. That means he rejects them. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. That's confession. But it doesn't stop with confession. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Don't just give sacrifices. He's call, God is calling upon them to turn, to do teshuvah, to turn back to him. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And so what is going to happen is that Samuel is going to give God's instructions to Saul. Verse 3, Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Kill everything. Wipe out their economy. Don't don't take any plunder. Kill every one of them. Now, why is that? It is because God has given Amalek time and opportunity to turn to him, but they have continued to become a blight on humanity, and it is time to discipline them, judge them, and remove them uh, from history. What's Saul going to do? He's going to completely blow it. In verses 18 and 19, Samuel says, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? That's his condemnation. But Saul says, I did it. I did what the Lord said to do. So Samuel says to him, verses 22 and 23, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Just stop there and think about this for a while. We're going to be here a couple of weeks once I get back. Rebellion is like demonism. When we disobey God's authority in little things or big things, it's like demonism. Sounds like a harsh statement, doesn't it? But what was Satan's original sin? I want to be like God, replacing God's authority with his own authority. That is the original sin, is rebellion against God. This is why the Bible emphasizes obedience to authority over and over and over again. Because the person who's not obedient to authority, the person who questions authority, not not, not that there aren't legitimate times for us to uh, question, but generally we are to be obedient. Why? Because when we're not, we're setting ourselves up to be a god. It is self-idolatry. It's that fifth arrogant skill, self-deification. Stubbornness. Now, that's just not general stubbornness. That is a person who is stubborn in their resistance to God. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Saul, he also has rejected you for being king. There are horrible consequences. Now, next time we're going to come back, we need to take some time just to remind ourselves why Amalek deserves such a horrible punishment. We'll look at Exodus 17, Deuteronomy, and a few other passages. So right now the lesson tonight is the dangers and the self-destruction of arrogance. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to be reminded that, that often we become 
uh, comfortable with our own sin, we become comfortable with our own arrogance, and we are blind to the realities that are going on in our own soul. And we, as a result, we're blind to the realities going on in the world around us. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we can see objectively our own behavior, that under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in your word, that your word will sanctify us and challenge us in terms of our need to obey you and to deal with this uh, sin that so easily besets every one of us. And we pray that we might come to understand grace and genuine humility that can only be produced in us through God the Holy Spirit, and that we might be willing to submit to your authority and the authority of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.